0: Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, wa salatu wa salamu ala ashrafu al-anbiya wal-mursaleen, Sayyidina wa maulana Muhammadin, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you so much for joining us again today uh, for our seventh session in this series of stories of our Islamic sacred history. Um I'm Umar Abdullah, Jazakum al-Khayar, shukran for joining us and inshallah, uh, we will start uh, with our story today and taking some reflections from it, also from some other traditions, and then also having a little bit of a chat at the end about the Hajj and some of the significance of that as we are in these uh, days of the Hajj. Now we've just entered in it today. uh, The first of the Hijjah is today here in the Emirates Um, after the sighting of the moon so these are the most important and sacred days of the year so alhamdulillah we get to start these days uh, with the story of the Hajj and uh, these significant personalities and their activities which have become uh, part of the uh, foundational and fundamental and actually the pillars of the Hajj so alhamdulillah it's a blessing that that timing coincided alhamdulillah our class etiquette, women only, no recordings or screenshots and questions or comments at the end and uh, here we have another picture of the Kaaba Uh, of course pre-COVID this must have been with the sea of people there and inshallah we ask Allah to make us of those who will be in the vicinity of the Kaaba of the sacred house inshallah as soon as possible. Our intentions inshallah for learning and teaching ar-Rahman rahmanir rahim nawaitu ta'alluma wa ta'alim. wa tadhakkura wa tadhkir wa naf wal-intifa' wal-ifadah wal-istifadah wal Hatha Allah Tamasuki kitabillahi wa sunnati Rasulihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa dua ilal huda wa dalalata ala al-khair ابْتِغَاءَ وَجِهِ اللَّهِ وَقُرْبِهِ وَالثَّوَابِهِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى In the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful, I intend to learn and teach, to remember and remind, to benefit myself and to benefit others, to derive usefulness and extend it to others, to encourage adherence to the book of Allah and the sunnah of his messenger ﷺ, to call to guidance and direct towards good, Thereby seeking the countenance, pleasure, proximity, and reward of Allah, the absolutely transcendent and most exalted. Ameen. And in that picture, we have Jabul Rahma, uh, which is the small mountain on the plain of Arafat where the pilgrims go. And as the Prophet has said, Al Hajju Arafah, the Hajj is Arafah. So it's by being present on that day, on the 9th of this month of Dhul Hijjah, that's uh, the most important rukan or pillar of the Hajj practices or the the Hajj rituals. And it's on that day when Allah's mercy descends and uh, all the people there are forgiven, all those who they make dua and pray for are forgiven. Uh, And we ask Allah that whoever is there remembers us in their duas inshallah, and that if we haven't yet been, that we get the chance to do so insha'Allah. Okay, today's class, um, we're going to discuss a bit about Sayyidah Sara, the wife of Nabi Ibrahim, Abraham um, alayhi wa salam, and Sayyidah Hajar after her, who was his other wife uh, or um, partner, as we will get to in the story, and look in more detail uh, at... The aspects of her life that we know about and also the legacy that she left and then as i said do some brief reflections on the hajj and as you can see here this is the legacy that Zayda hajja left this is the sa'i or the movement between the two hills of safa and marwa in this picture obviously this is a modern picture where it's all enclosed and air-conditioned marble floors and everything um, and this is the pilgrim's Going back and forth seven times between those two hills as she did so that's how it looks now and this picture also gives you some perspective on the distance which is actually about 450 meters Uh, so it's quite far and uh, if you do that seven times then it comes to about 3.6 kilometers that you're just walking in this part of the hutch So it's highly recommended to do it when you are younger and fitter and in a good state of health and not to delay your Hajj as it is a religious obligation if you do fulfill the conditions for it becoming obligatory upon you um, such as being Muslim, such as being sane and being free and having the financial means to do so and also having a safe path to actually get to the Hajj and perform the rituals so if those conditions are open and available to you uh, then you shouldn't delay it Um, holidays in Thailand holidays in Morocco as fascinating as it is or any of the other Muslim lands as fascinating as they are and uh, within them there are also uh, spiritual pilgrimage sites and things like that and places that Uh, we want to go and souls that we want to connect with those that are on the face of the earth and those who are beneath it Um, and for all the other great and tremendous history and culture and everything that we would want to experience from 14 centuries of um, the muslim world um, that will still be there um, next year inshallah and your hajj is something that you should attend to straight away so If you are by the means financially and you do meet the conditions, then by all means make it a priority to go and complete that obligation. And then inshallah, whatever you're blessed with in the rest of your life, you have that to go and explore whatever you want to in the world, inshallah. And you'll probably find that you'll just want to go back to Mecca and Medina anyway. Okay, so we're just going to mention... Uh, what we know about Sayyida Sara who was the wife of Nabi Ibrahim. She is mentioned a couple of times in the Quran and we're going to talk about her specifically um, with regards to how she's introduced in some of the stories in our tradition. Now these stories they're not exactly authenticated and uh, often the sources of these stories are not known uh, but they they are there in the books of, of history of Ibn Hisham, also in some of the tafsirs, um, the tafsir of al-Tabari, who was one of the earliest um, exegetes of the Quran, uh, also thereafter in Ibn Kathir, which he comes sometime after, a couple of centuries after. So the stories are there, and they come again from the stories of the Israeliin, of the stories of the, the, the children of Israel. So um, we can't really verify them historically but this is what has come to us of these uh, events and so we we take it as that inshallah and there are different reports there's different ways that these stories are mentioned in different books and different authors uh, will choose to put in different things so depending on how they uh, feel about it or what they think is important so we will just sort of look generally at um, how Sayyidah Sarah is Portrayed particularly in this uh, early part of her. Well, it's not actually early because they were old, but I mean in this uh, beginning part where she becomes the mother of Sayyidina Ishaq or Isaac as he is known. Uh, so, first of all, the story with her starts when Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam, uh, went to Egypt from Philistine, from Palestine. And uh, when he was there, somebody from the people of the Pharaoh, so the Pharaoh is a generic name for the king or the ruler of Egypt. It doesn't refer specifically to the Pharaoh in Nabi Musa's time, although it can do, but it just means generally the ruler. So the Pharaoh at the time was informed by one of his people that uh, this man had come in from the lands of Philistine and he had an incredibly beautiful wife and that she was not like any of the daughters of Eve. Okay, so of course the Pharaoh's interest was piqued. So he calls Sayyidina Ibrahim and he says that he wants to see, he's heard about this woman and he wants to know who is she. So Sayyidina Ibrahim says to him, she is my sister. And it's mentioned specifically that by calling her his sister, That of course he meant not his biological sister but obviously his sister in faith or his sister in Tawheed or Islam. And so there is a little bit of speculation as to why he said that. And it's not really known exactly why but one of the possibilities is he said that because had the Pharaoh known that she was actually his wife then he might have killed Nabi Ibrahim because if he was so curious about this woman and she's married then he will just get rid of the husband but if he says that she's my sister then the possibility there is that he might be interested to see her and there is a way of her protecting herself in any uncomfortable situation but also it means that Nabi Ibrahim is not going to come under threat either so at the time the the best that he could say whilst he's in the court of this incredibly wealthy and powerful and uh tyrannical ruler is for him to say that and that that's the best protection for both of them so he says that and then he he tells um Nabi Ibrahim to bring her but she wasn't there she was actually back in the lands of Philistine so he took his, his camel his journey and he brought her back to Egypt and so uh, she was summoned to visit the pharaoh and before she left to go in there the nabi ibrahim uh gave her a dua or she was inspired with a particular dua to protect her from the pharaoh and from any evil that he might inflict upon her so she goes to visit him and she says this to A'a ah the whole time and she's seeking protection from Allah and she she goes in front of him and he sees her incredible beauty and of course he's you know totally infatuated and has to have whatever he wants and he reaches out to touch her and his hand becomes uh, like solid and brittle like wood so it dries up and perhaps we could say it was a form of paralysis maybe I'm not sure exactly because in the books it says that it becomes dry like wood so it stopped working basically and so he was uh very surprised and taken aback by this and he sent her away and then he called for her again like a couple of days later and she went back and constantly reciting this and this uh, du'a for protection and the same thing happens and this happened about four times and then finally he uh, says to his people take her away from me you've bought me a shaitan but at the same time he was still kind of fascinated with her and so as he sent her away he said that this is a woman who shouldn't serve herself and so he sent a slave girl and the slave girl who was from the Egyptian people that he sent was Sayyidina Sayyidina Hajar okay who (laughs) went to live with them and it's also said that during this time when Nabi Ibrahim was obviously not with Sayyidina Sara in these rather bizarre uh, meetings of Firaun and his attempts at seducing her and becoming shriveled up or paralyzed or whatever had happened to him that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had like opened a window or a way for him to actually see in real time what was happening so this was one of the miracles associated with that and he witnessed this whole um event of her of everything about her going in and saying the dua and protecting herself and everything that happened and so this of course endeared him more to his wife and so he he began really really to appreciate uh, more and more who she was and her character and her piety and her devotion and her dependence on Allah. So um, this, uh, this helped him to, uh, to love her even more. Anyway, so Alhamdulillah, she's saved from this terrible ordeal um, of being the object of the Pharaoh's fantasy and she comes back with this slave girl, Hajar. Uh, so they return to Palestine and of course, uh, Sayyid Ibrahim has no children and his wife, Sayyid Asara, is barren and um after many many years and now they're both in their 80s uh they have no children so uh, Seda Sarah realizes that her best option is to um uh, mention to her to her husband that perhaps he should try and have a child with hajar um as she would be she was younger um fertile inshallah and that she would be the best bet for him having any type of offspring so he has a child with her and this child is called Ismail and Ismail and Ishaq were the two sons of Nabi Ibrahim so Hajar has this son called Ismail and after a short time because we know um, in, our, in our Tafsir actually that um, when uh, Sayyidina Hajar and Ismail left uh, Palestine that the baby was still breastfeeding uh, so this, this is um, sort of commonly known and Sara began to get jealous. And so she, uh, and this is also something which is, runs right across all the, the, the Jewish Christian and the Islamic sources, that there was a jealousy there. Allahu Alam, of course, but this is what's written. And that she asked um, Nabi Ibrahim Alayhislam, to send Hajar and the baby away. So uh, Sayyidina Ibrahim takes the two of them, Hajar and her child, and they leave philistine now there's a whole other side to these stories which i highly recommend that you listen to a lecture by sheikh abdul hakim murad um, from the cambridge muslim college and he has a series of lectures called paradigms of leadership and you can access them on soundcloud which is that uh, podcast platform that's free And um, the third lecture that he gave in this series, and it's ongoing, Alhamdulillah, because it's really excellent. I've listened to most of them. Uh, The third one he gave is on Sayyidah Hajar. So I really recommend that you listen to that. And particularly for these aspects, which I'm not going to really go into very much here, but just briefly mention them about the different ways in which um, the Jewish and the Christian traditions have portrayed Sayyidah Hajar and the narrative that's being constructed around her in those traditions and how different it is to the islamic narrative about her Um, and one of the examples of that is is this picture here which is from the the dutch sort of enlightenment tradition and it's called the banishment of hagar they call it hagar h-a-g-a-r this was painted around 1645 by a Dutch artist called Jan Victors, and uh, here you have the European interpretation of this event. Um, Now what's significantly different about the Jewish and Christian interpretations is that Haja was the Egyptian slave girl and she was therefore the symbol of otherness and she was the symbol of unchosenness if you like because 22 years it said after Sayyidina Ismail was born then Sayyidina Sarah did have a child and she had the child Ishaq and uh, Isaac and he became like the father of the Jews or the chosen people the Israelites uh, and uh, so there's always this sort of conflict and contestation that's put forward in these traditions between Sayyidina Sarah and Sayyidina Hajar and that Hajar always comes off second best. And right through all this period, even through 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, you have this constant um, perpetuation of the biblical and the, the Jewish um, scriptures that put forward this view that Hajar, she was, uh, she was poor, she was a slave, she was black, she was Egyptian, meaning uh, African, we, we might say. And that the, everything about her was wrong and symbolized all that was wrong, whilst they knew full well that from her son Ismail salam, came the Arabs, and that the Prophet Muhammad wasalam, was from this tremendous line of prophets who had come from Sayyidina Ismail. So, of course, you know, this picture was painted saying around 1645. And uh, since uh, the ten hundreds, there had been the Christian Crusades. So already, this is preceded by a good five, six hundred years, if not a little bit more, of uh, sort of a, a Christian antagonism and a Christian non-acceptance of the Prophet Al-Islam, of Islam of the Quran. Um, obviously, the Crusades spanned well over a century, nearly two centuries. So. There's a lot of history there and a lot of reason to put forward and to keep perpetuating these narratives about the the otherness of Sayyida Hajar and her son Ismail. Um, And actually in that lecture that I mentioned, Sheikh Abdul-Hakim Murad, he he talks in that about how this uh, heightened type of uh, fear is now represented today in the form of the Muslim refugee trying to get into Europe of everything... Uh, that's uh, wrong in the world is represented in in the muslim figure whether it be the taliban or whether it be isis or whether it be any of these um, other images the the little rubber dinghy full of african migrants most of them muslim um, coming across the mediterranean Um, all these images which are really really scaring and haunting traditional white christian europe are very much there today and they they feed and come out of this whole narrative on um, Hajar and Ismail and the fact that they are the rejected outcast unchosen ones who got abandoned in the desert and that's kind of where their story stops because it says in the Bible I think it's in Deuteronomy uh, that they were uh, banished to the land of Paran and that is uh, known from other sources to be the deserts of the Hejaz of what's now Saudi Arabia and particularly around that area where Makkah is and the old name for Makkah is Bakkah and that's also mentioned in the Quran. So this uh, Bakkah was a, a place that had been known about after it was settled in this land of Paran. Other stories like in the Bible they say she was banished to Beersheba which is part of the um, Palestinian desert lands uh, but it was actually further than that. So here we have a very uh, european uh, depiction you can see in the background there the image of sarah who's looking kind of smug and with a bit of consternation and a range of emotions there on her face with her child but Ishaq wasn't born yet and also as we know satan ismail was a breastfeeding child when they were banished So this land here, um, I could only kind of find this picture. This is what the hills of Mecca look like. So when they say that she was uh, banished to the desert, it wasn't that uh, rolling uh, windswept sand dunes that you might imagine with the odd palm tree and the odd camel uh, meandering across and the possibility of an oasis somewhere in the background. It's not that, okay? It's not sandy desert. It's this um this is what the mountains of Mecca look like and it's as you can see it's it's harsh and it's covered in these huge hot black rocks that just absorb all the sun and it's very very steep mountains and they're as barren and as dry as anything it's almost like nothing lives there except perhaps a few lizards and a few snakes or something of course rain does come in the area but for the most part it's an extremely hostile and harsh land and uh, the city of Mecca and uh, the house the Kaaba um, was situated in a, a small valley actually between some of these very large mountains and it's mentioned in the Quran when uh, Sayyidina Ismail walked with Said Hajar and the baby and they kept uh, they left Philistine and they kept going and going and then going south, south, south and um, sort of parallel with the the Red Sea coast and as they kept going further and further south and into this mountainous land um, they were leaving behind fertile ground, they were leaving behind regular rain and it was becoming more and more um, barren and harsh. Uh, This particular ayah in Surat Ibrahim um, which we will get to this part in the story just in a moment but just to introduce the ayah here, he says, "Bismi Rahim, Robana Inni Min So he says, "Oh, my Lord, I have settled some of my offspring in a valley of no vegetation." So a wadi, which is a valley. غير without the Zara'in, without any agriculture, without any plants, without any vegetation. So there was absolutely nothing living there. Ainda Beitika al Muharrami, like at your sacred house. But there was no sacred house built yet. Okay, this, because Sayyidina Ibrahim came back later when Sayyidina Ismail was an adult and together they laid the foundations and built the first Kaaba. Uh, but here it's already mentioned, and he says, So, why did he leave them there at what would be the site of the sacred house? So that they would establish the prayer, not just perform the prayer, but establish it and make that the pillar, the foundation, the and the, the absolute essential element of life, because that place had no life. So what are people meant to do there? Why would he leave his, his, uh, his wife, the mother of his child, and his child who came to him at a very, very advanced age, why would he leave them in this most extraordinarily difficult place, which he says there's nothing here, there's no vegetation but the reason why is so that they would establish the prayer and this is the foundational action of the human being and we know that all prophets had prayers um, different to, the, to what the prophet Muhammad a.s. was given and what he's taught us but the essential function of the human being and the essential purpose of the human being is worship and that worship is embodied in the prayer so that's what this is for so he says, um, he uh, he asks Allah to make the hearts of people inclined towards them. There's no one there, so who could he possibly be talking about? And provide them with fruits with tamaraj, uh so that they may be thankful. So he's he's asking that people should come, that there should this should be a place of life and livelihood, and that they should be given sustenance, rizq and that they should be allowed to thrive there so that they would see and understand the bounties. So this here is another orientalist type of picture but just to show you the way in which there's such a misrepresentation of the, the, the European and the Judaic and the Christian tradition compared to the Islamic tradition and how we understand this uh, person who is Sayyid A haja So as we said she had already given birth to Satan Ismail in Palestine and now she is walking with her husband and he's left them uh, in this extremely barren land that we've just seen and so they get there they get there and there's nothing there and then uh, Sayyidina Ibrahim gives her a water skin and a very small amount of provision and he turns around and walks off and so she sees him leaving and she calls out to him and this is narrated in Hadith and or sorry in the tafsir of um, Sayyidina Ibn Abbas and she calls out to him and she says "Uh, where are you going? And uh, are you leaving us and he doesn't answer he doesn't even turn around he just keeps walking and so she calls out again and again no answer and again and then by the third time and she says is this a command from Allah and then he uh, affirms that and then she says oh and now she's relieved okay so can you imagine being left in that place with a water skin and a breastfeeding baby but this is a command from Allah so so she's content imagine that state that she must have been in contentment at that point and then he affirms that and keeps going and he doesn't turn around to look and so she says ah if this is a commandment from Allah then he won't let us be wasted or he won't uh, leave us in vain and meaning what he will help us so by the second day her water had run out and her milk had dried up and she was thirsty and dehydrated and so was her child so she walked across a a small distance maybe a hundred meters or so away from them and there was a small hill which is called Safa and she uh, went and climbed up this little hill and she looked out is there anyone coming can i see any water what's on the other side of this hill she couldn't see anything so she ran across this distance to the next hill, which was kind of directly opposite it, which is called Marwa. And that's, as we said, a distance of about 450 meters. And so when she came down from the hill, there was like a little dip. And so she kind of ran a bit quickly there. And then she walked across and then she kind of ran up the next hill. And that's also a part of the Hajj uh, when you go between Safa and Marwa, between the two hills, replicating what she did. So that's at the beginning of um, when you start to move away from each side in the seven times that you go between them. Uh, So anyway, then she ran up Marwa, which is about the same height as uh, Safa, and she looked, same thing, couldn't see anyone um, on that side, couldn't see any uh, life, couldn't see any water, couldn't see any form of sustenance, so she ran back and she did this seven times until she was exhausted and her baby was crying and she came back to him and she looked at him and then she looked up and then she saw that angel uh, Gabriel, Jibril alayhi salam had come and he struck the earth and this little bubbling of water began. And that, of course, is the well of Zamzam, which is still running and flowing nonstop today. Uh, subhanallah! And so this is our our um, holy and sacred water, which runs right there in this well. Um, it's a water of immense healing. The Prophet had said that Zamzam is for whatever you drink it for. So whatever intention you have when you drink Zamzam, whether it be for healing, whether it be for rizik whether it be for um internal spiritual purification for anything inshallah then that will your your du'as will be answered inshallah um so zamzam is itself a miracle it came up by the feet of the baby and she gathered it together because she was afraid that it would, would like disappear into the sand or run off and not get it so she she gathered it together as much as she could and she tried to build a little thing like a little wall around it to try and keep it and it flowed and flowed Uh, subhanallah so after they had been saved like this and they drank the water and there was a passing tribe in the distance called the Jurhum tribe and they saw that there were birds circling around in the distance in that area which they knew there was no one there because they would pass through uh, the vicinity of that little valley um in their yearly uh, movement and migration and so they looked for a couple of days and they thought this is very strange that there's water that there are birds there because that would mean there's water so they noticed this for a few days and then they sent a couple of their people to go and investigate what's going on and then they found Sayyidah Hajar and, and Nabi Ismail salam and so they went and they called their people and they came and they settled there because this was a spring of uh, the most uh, pure and uh, blessed water which they could get that feeling and that sense of they knew that um and so they settled there and so Sayyidah Ahaja had the company she had the people whose hearts were inclined towards her and her son and her son grew up there and he married one of the girls and of their tribe when he got older of course and um, then we have the rest of the story which we won't go into now um, of Sayyidina Ismail and Nabi Ibrahim coming back and what happened after that. So um, Subhanallah this is uh, the beginning of life in Mecca, this is the beginning of the Arabs um, and this is the beginning of the prophetic line, as we said, from which the Prophet ﷺ, would come from. So, from these people, you had um, the best of people who were the Arabs, the best tribe of the Arabs, which is the Quraysh, um, the best uh, branch of the Quraysh, which is the Bani Hashim, which is the tribe of the Prophet, ﷺ, and the best person from that tribe, who is him, Muhammad. Uh, peace and blessings be upon him. And they all came from Hajar this Egyptian slave girl, okay, and her son Saidna Ismail. Now the interesting thing too and is the Hijra Ismail, the the brick part of the Kaaba there at the bottom and then you see that semicircle, that kind of horseshoe shape. That's called the Hijra Ismail. And Saidna Ismail and his mother Saida Hajar are buried in there so when you go for the Hajj or Umrah and you make your circumambulation your Tawaf seven times around the Kaaba you're also going around their burial place so there's a tomb in there okay and that's a really interesting thing to note as well because they are uh, entombed they are uh, permanently buried there and as a reminder um, that, that that she and her action of going between those two hills has been instituted as a part of the rituals of the Hajj and as something that we remember this woman by and there's no other religion or religious tradition on the face of the earth that has ever been instituted by a woman apart from this one and subhanallah whilst we have this type of artwork being perpetuated over and over and over again literally for centuries then what we have as Muslims from how many years even before that people who are going up and down up and down emulating her and representing her and her movement between those two mountains in her absolute reliance and dependence and faith in God and so instead of trying to show her in some political or in some uh, in some political representation to show everything that you would want her to be in order to prove you and your people and your faith as being superior instead of wasting your time and your effort on that what Muslims have always done is celebrate her and emulate her and be as much as they can like her in this um, moment of the Hajj where you are there in your your ihram for the men where you are stripped of all your possessions of this worldly life you don't even wear a stitched garment okay because the ihram has no stitching on it you are there in just two white pieces of cloth and you are there as exposed and as vulnerable as you could ever be and you say, لَبَيْكَ la لَبَيْتَ Here I am my Lord, at your service my Lord and you follow in that state of uh, a- about as, as low as you can go in terms of the dunya because there's nothing that you can hold on to to give yourself any type of boost or lift or status but at the same time you are the highest that you can be which is in your complete and utter servitude an acknowledgement of God, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's the state that she was in. So despite the fact that she was this, oh, you know, like heaven forbid this Egyptian slave, like, oh gosh, she wasn't that at all. And she, the state that she was far transcended any limited type of um, understanding or a or type of definition or way that you would want to try and encapsulate her in the dunya sense, but rather she was so far beyond that. Why? Because she had complete and utter trust and complete and utter devotion and faith and that's what's celebrated and represented uh, in this movement here between um, the two hills of Safa and Marwa. It's called the Sai and this is part of the Hajj. So here on the right is an old picture as you can see. There's like sort of a wooden structure and it's looks like it might be a canvas type of a roof there so it might keep a little bit of the hot sun off but certainly not like our marble encrusted air-conditioned passageway that we have today Uh, but that's um that's how people did it and of course before that there may not even have been a cover Um, And people in the past, of course, were much stronger than they are today and were able to endure these types of conditions, particularly in acts of religious devotion and duty. And on the left, we have actually a picture of the mountain itself, um, the two mountains which look like that. And this photograph, I think, was actually taken through a glass or kind of a a perspex um, screen, which now separates people. So before you used to be able to actually climb up and sit there. Um, So as you were doing your uh, back and forth between, once you'd finish, you could sit there and rest actually on top of those mountains. But uh, I believe now they are protected by a kind of glass covering. So I think this photo was taken from outside the glass, but you can see the type of rock and you can see how harsh it was. And then the roof behind it, of course, you can even see the air conditioning vents And a bit of decoration so it's definitely changed Uh, but this is um, the part of the Hajj where we celebrate her what she also shows I say to Hajj is that her true uh, humanity is expressed through her appeal to the divine so who she really was as a creation of Allah um, becomes apparent because she was desperate and she literally had no one to turn to she had nothing to do but to take whatever means that she could and to appeal to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to save her and to change her condition and this reminds us that the tyrants never succeed and that those who spend their whole life seeking to accumulate wealth and power for themselves are actually the weakest of all Because once those things that they've sought to establish themselves with begin to crumble then they fall as well. So if you're small and if you're simple and you're just a nobody and you're just going around in your life don't be deluded that somehow you're going to be better or that somehow things will change for you in a good way if you become deceived and seduced by the worldly delusions of fame and celebrity and beauty and recognition and wealth and status because there isn't success in those and what they represent is not success Um, nor are the people who follow that path truly successful um, but rather it's the little people the people who don't try and get anything for themselves from those material things but who recognize that their strength exists purely in their connection with allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and their faith in him and their dependence and reliance upon him then they are truly the successful and Sayyidina hajj represents that for us and and her her actual manifestation of that is something that we emulate in this um, sacred ritual of the hajj and also in the umrah in the the smaller pilgrimage if we do that as well inshallah so she her her true success was in that and of course it was manifested even after that because she became the mother or the matriarch of the chosen prophet so whilst she was cast out and has had this constantly negative uh, narrative made up about her uh, for being the unchosen one she is actually the mother of the chosen one because the prophet Muhammad his name is Al Mustafa and Mustafa means the chosen one. So she she's the mother of his whole prophetic line. And that if that's not success, then what is? And I don't like want to carry this sort of metaphor too far, but if we're talking about women on the straight path and we can see this line that Sayyidah Hajar made, and she ran a straight line seven times like about three and a half kilometers in between these two mountains. And she almost literally represents for us the straight path. And she, I mean the Tawaf, the circumambulation around the the Kaaba, that movement in the circle, that is a different geometric and cosmological representation. But this straight path representation uh, that she laid down for us is something also for us to remember too um that that she ran and she did her best without diverting without swerving but just by going sincerely and with all the truthfulness and and the siddiq that she had seeking allah whilst going in between these two mountains and that just happens to be uh, represented through straight lines okay so we just have a a little bit of a brief reflection on the hajj and uh, as we said this uh, circumambulation this Tawaf, as it's called in Arabic, this um, circular movement around the Kaaba uh, is something that happens all the time and has been happening 24 hours a day uh, from, certainly from the time when the Prophet uh, re-instituted the correct practices of the Hajj pilgrimage because since that time of Sayyidina Ibrahim, when the foundations and when the first Kaaba was actually built uh, there has, because there was over a period of millennia of course you know, people came, there was uh, polytheism um, shirk as it's called, um, all sorts of things that people did uh, which corrupted those original rituals which he had laid down and so part of the message of the Prophet Muhammad wasalam, was to come and to purify those practices and to clean them up and to reinstate them and reinstitute them and that is how people for the last fourteen hundred and forty years or more um, have been performing these sacred rituals. So this movement in the circular motion anti-clockwise is a representation of how everything that moves or orbits in the entire universe actually goes, which is this anti-clockwise. And so that includes from the biggest of the planets and right down to the smallest of cells so when anything goes in a in a circular motion, then it, it goes in an anti-clockwise direction. And so this is embodied all the time in this movement uh, around the Kaaba. Uh, but apart from mentioning some of these uh, geometric uh, patterns and movements and things, we're also connected to the Hajj on a very linear, uh, like a linear type of, um, what can I say? not the a direction but like we have this straight line which connects us from the past to the future and the Hajj is what connects us to both ends of that line. So just as one of our reflections and perhaps that sort of will be enough for us to think about is that this particular action of the Hajj is the renewal of the Pilgrim's Covenant with your Lord. So when you go for the Hajj and when you make the intention to go and the Hajj itself, the word Hajj means quest, and quest means an intention or a purpose. So the purpose that you have when you go to perform these sacred acts of the Hajj is to renew your covenant with Allah. And so that intention alone and then you're acting on it and going there takes you right back say to the beginning of that line that cosmological line which you have connected points to all the way so we'll explain what those are inshallah so when you make your intention to renew your covenant you're taking yourself right back to the beginning when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gathered all the souls and he gathered them this is in the pre-existent the pre-dunya existence so this is before this material world was made but all the souls were made and they had been in existence for eons basically and then Allah gathered them all together on this plain next to Arafat so next to where we go as we saw the picture before where the Jabul Rahmah is the plain of Arafat which is the Hajj uh, next to that is another plain and all the souls were gathered there and Allah said Am I not your Lord? This is in Surah Al-A'raf. And they all said, Bala, they said, Yes, you are. And so this is where the covenant between the soul and Allah was made. So when you go for your Hajj, and when you go back to that area, then you're actually renewing that covenant. Okay, so now you're, you're joined through this to the beginning. And then what came after that is our ancient history of Sayyidina Ibrahim, and Sayyidina Ismail, and Sayyidina Hajar as we just discussed so in your performance of the rituals of the Hajj and of the Sa'i particularly going back and forth between Safa and Marwa you're now connecting to that point in time which is further along the chronological um, uh, the chronological movement of the the earth in our history so you've got a very ancient point with the connection with the soul and your covenant then you go forward and now you've got a connection through your emulating those rituals to that point in time and then you have a connection back 1400 years to the Prophet ﷺ and his reinstitution of the Hajj so now on this chronological line now you're connected there and then you are also connected of course to the current time that you're in so you're moving forward now so you're in your own time and you're connecting to all those souls those two million or more people who have gone with the same intention as you to renew your covenant with Allah so now you're connected to them because these are the people of your time of our time so you are a part of every single person there and their history just as they are a part of yours so you connect there and then of course you connect to your future and the chronological line that we want to be on that projects immediately into our distant future is that of when we pass through this life and we're raised up and um, we move forward and we go over the sirats so over that bridge that very very fine bridge or line which crosses over the the higher levels Of the fire, and which takes us inshallah Salimin through to Jannah. Then, when we go over that bridge and we get there into these realms of paradise in the afterlife, then what is the ultimate in that paradise is what's called Al Kathib Al Abiyad, which is the White Dune D U N E, and it's on that White Dune. Uh, on a Friday that the countenance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is revealed to the inhabitants of paradise and that the scholars say is the is the real real meaning of paradise where you actually get to experience that proximity and that connection to your Lord there so as you can see this Hajj is not just some set of rituals that people do and feel they're compelled to do but rather it's a whole system which connects you right back to the beginning of time and right to eternity because it's through your connection to your understanding that you have a covenant with Allah to know him and worship him that you are able to um, see the relevance of all this and the universality of all of this and where you as one soul, as one human being fit in to this whole cosmological system that Allah has out of his mercy not just created you in but created you in it as a Muslim and so for that we have to be eternally thankful that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us faith, has given us Iman, has given us access to knowledge inshallah and may Allah always increase our teachers and those who inspire us and connect us to them. Um, Those of the past, those of the present, inshallah, and may our children and those around us also drink from these incredible sources of marifa, of gnosis, understanding and and practical knowledge as well. And so here we are um, looking back and also looking forward and that that's a part of our connection to this sacred house which is the point which we face five times a day this is the people the direction of prayer we point to this house uh, because it is our point that we we face when we pray and it is where we gather and this is where all this cosmological joining and connection and happening occurs around this particular structure So Inshallah, we'll leave it there. And also just to mention briefly that as we said at the beginning that this is the beginning of the first uh, 10 days of this sacred month which are the best days of the year and a day of fasting in them is equivalent to fasting a year and a night of prayer is equivalent to Laylatul Qadr. So we ask Allah to increase us in all things that bring us closer to him and that are beloved to him, Inshallah, in these 10 days whether it be through... Um, a commitment to reading more Qur'an, more dhikr, more du'a and uh, more charity and more of the things which are good for us and for those around us, inshallah. And we ask Allah to uh, lift this calamity of this illness, of this pandemic, uh, which is affecting the entire world. And uh, Habib Omar mentioned uh, last week, actually, um, I mean, of course, there are many ways that you can understand and look at this whole pandemic and virus and everything and the one aspect that he mentioned the other day um, seeking and um, beseeching Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to lift this from us is so that we can once again rush to acts of worship such as the Hajj so at least this year alhamdulillah there are more people who are being able to perform it but of course nothing like it's always been and it's difficult for people now many mosques are closed gatherings are closed Um, it's hard for people to come together um, in acts of good and so one of the reasons why we beseech Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to lift this from us is so that we can go back to those acts of good and not be deprived from them because for a Muslim to be deprived of these acts of worship is extremely painful on the soul And whilst the nafs, the lower self, the laziness in a person might look at it, for example, as, oh, okay, I don't have to worry about Hajj this year, I can't go anyway, we should actually be crying over that and we should be really distraught because, as we said, this connection to the Hajj is what connects us to the entire cosmological unfolding and uh, if we really knew and understood what that meant uh, then we would see the biggest calamity as not actually the virus but of the fact that we are being deprived from attending this uh this ritual of the hajj and the performance of the hajj and of fulfilling our connection to allah through it so we ask allah to give us basira to give us insight uh, to give us a deep deep a deep deep understanding and meaning um, of what the realities of these things really are, and to protect us from the, the evil of our lower selves and to raise us in rank um, always, inshallah.